This Dharma talk was recorded at Prairie Mountain Zen Center in Longmont, Colorado. Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, we have the pleasure of doing our precept study. I'd like to thank you and for your uh, year or two of suggesting that we do precept study. This pre seventh precept um, stated several ways. Here's one, not praising yourself while abusing others. It always occurred to me, well, we just studied the sixth precept of not criticizing others. Isn't the seventh precept kind of making the same point? And I'm like, of course it's making the same point. <laughs> it's a very important point. <laughs> It was very hard to uh, to uh, to accord with, so it doesn't bother me if it's making a similar similar point. Um, start with a little bit from uh, Robert Aiken, um, "The Mind of Clover." This book's been out for a very long time, relatively. Is, uh, arrogance condemns the arrogant one. It announces to the world that I do not feel at ease with myself, so I must summon up self-praise and go about abusing other people. Put arrogance to rest. Focus on your task and let everything else go. So this precept gets to the root of separating ourselves from others, which of course has some practical qualities. This is my toothbrush. It's not your toothbrush. Um, I'm going to take care of my mess. You know, you're not going to take care of my mess. It has some very practical qualities to separate ourselves from others, but ultimately it has a lot of delusion and a lot of suffering if we cannot also realize, realize oneness and equality. So Reb Anderson introduces this very well. He says, uh, not praising self at the expense of others. One of the main ways that we express our attachment to self is our constant effort to present ourselves in a favor favorable light. We are anxious about whether we are worthy of being supported by the universe. Uncertain that the world has enough love and resources to go around. We exaggerate our merits or lie outright in order to convince ourselves or others that we are praiseworthy. We often express self-praise by comparing ourselves favorably with others, so thus either intentionally or unintentionally disparaging others. 
so this is our situation and he's pointing out we do this because we lack confidence um, so I study Zen study Kadigari Roshi's teaching he's always talking about have confidence have confidence that's very important even if we don't openly express self-praise in our minds we are always monitoring and judging our conduct to determine if it is worthy of praise or blame Thinking of our merits and finding some skillful way to let others know about them is a fundamental function of the human psyche. On the conventional level, this precept is suggesting that we refrain from exercising one of our most natural and basic inclinations. We are being encouraged to study the impulse to speak favorably about ourselves in any way that disparages others. So there's a, sometimes I think there's a subtle difference between confidence and arrogance, but uh, confidence can exist with humility and balance, but you know, there is the basic psychological need to, for self-image up to, up to a point, but where does Well, we can see pretty clearly sometimes where it becomes an ego because of suffering. But Reb says it would be deceptive to try to stop the self-praising impulse without first uprooting our self-cherishing stance. If we tried to stop it, it would probably just go into hiding. Then, because it would be operating with less conscious supervision, the impulse would be even more influential and harmful. As long as we cling to the self, the impulse to stop self-praise will just be another foolish act of selfishness. So this gets a little, a little deep, but uh, and he he does mention a lot of this precept is occurring in our in our thoughts um, if you're aware of your thoughts anyhow you're can see yourself comparing yourself to others uh, favorably um, so instead of like pretending like we're not doing this we should fully see what we're doing and um, And in a way, not not kind of try to stop it. You know, our judgmental mind is instantaneous. Um, I think this has something to do with human evolution in terms of identifying immediately if something's beneficial or not beneficial, and that kind of leaks into just judging everything um, instantaneously. So. If we see what we're doing, um, then we can work with it um, in a Dieta Lari's book, The um, Heart of Being. Just, he makes a similar point. We can't practice this precept by suppressing the desire 
to elevate the self and put down others. We can't practice it by trying to praise others. That too accomplishes nothing but separation. This precept is about the unity of self and other. It is about seeing the possibility of realizing that unity. Concealing or transforming deluded thoughts concerning self and other does not reach it. The person who seems to be an adversary, making our life miserable, is nobody but ourself. The stress we experience in our life is not coming from someplace else. We create it. The sooner we realize that, the sooner we are able to do something about it. Being aware, being aware of what we're doing, you know. We naturally can see it and work with it as opposed to being aware and then um, self-criticizing ourselves too much. So one thing I like about this precept is um, kind of recommended cure is just um, <laughs> give up the concept of self and other, you know, just, um, just oneness, you know, and this, this develops through our practice and our zazen, but the precept, they also make some, uh, the teachers make some good recommendations on how to work with this. Uh, Reb says, not seeing how all beings kindly support and sustain our virtue and goodness, it is possible to speak of our own virtue as something separate from others. In such a state of ignorance, you may speak of your virtue as appearing almost in spite of others. You forget that it is really only due to the support of countless others that you accomplish anything of merit. Further, indulging in self-loathing won't stop the self-praising impulse either. Thoughts of self-loathing are born of the same concern that generates self-praise. Both self-loathing and self-praise are tools in service of self-concern. I'm trying to think of this quote. Um, this quote, somebody, not a Buddhist, but it hits the point is, the point is not to think less of ourselves, but to think of ourselves less, less often. <laughs> so you can have a good self-image, but you're not too obsessed or, or worried with your self-image. Uh, so Rip says, uh, self-concern is often expressed by taking yourself too seriously. Ironically, taking yourself too seriously is a form of disrespecting yourself. It is taking yourself for granted. Taking yourself too seriously means that you believe that your own ideas about yourself are real. It means that you exaggerate your self-importance and underestimate your self-worth. That's an interesting line. We could simultaneously 
exaggerate our self-importance, yet underestimate our self-worth. In its root sense, respect means to look again. You have a usual way of seeing yourself. To be respectful of yourself means to look again. Take another look. Perhaps you haven't seen clearly who you are. You may have overestimated or underestimated yourself. So as it'll come up here, you know, generally we're working from concepts, things we've decided in the past, things we decided in our childhood, and our practice is to be grounded in, you know, what, what is the actual truth. So this idea of our not taking ourselves too seriously, I'll give a couple examples from the other authors, but I have a, a little phrase that uh, nobody can laugh at you if they are laughing with you. Meaning, if we are laughing at our own foibles, um, then we're all laughing together. So, um, Robert Aiken had this little story. Um, one of my most endearing memories is of a family that I lived with for a while, many years ago. Father and mother both had low-paying jobs and there were, was much stress. They worked things out by role-playing each other. The daughter would play her cranky mother, the mother her demanding daughter, each laughing at herself as she saw her precious concerns parodied from the outside. <laughs> so after they fought and complained and were mad, then they just had the confidence to make fun of each other <laughs> and, and laugh about it. Uh, that's really sweet. And uh, Diane Rosetto has a kind of story with the same point. Um, an indigenous tribe in Tasmania has an interesting community ritual. When something happens in which someone behaves unskillfully, thus upsetting the balance of the community, group comes together around the fire to reenact the situation. For example, if a man yells at his wife a lot and chases her out of the hut, causing havoc in the village, he is brought before the community not to be judged or reprimanded, but rather to help him see the absurdity of his behavior. Members of the tribe role-play the scene between him and his wife in a light-hearted way. The villagers, including children, all take part laughing, joking, and mimicking the absurdity of the behavior till the man himself relaxes and also realizes the absurdity of his actions. Interestingly enough, even the wife takes part in the villagers' dramatization. Before too long, the whole scene turns into a big party and the husband and wife provide food for the rest of the villagers. The purpose of the ritual is to acknowledge their fallibility openly so that they can put it into perspective, even laugh at it. Uh, sometimes I think it's good for us to look at other cultures 
and see, uh, you know, instead of locking everything down as super negative, super fixed, you are a terrible person. Like, you know, why don't we just treat people with respect and give them a chance and laugh and then wake up to the absurdity of uh, selfish behavior. This would this would be a very different criminal justice system for anyhow, perhaps for low-level crimes. Okay. Now back to uh, Diane Rizzotto-Roshi's book. Uh, she introduces the topic very well, too. This precept shines the beacon light on the overt and subtle ways in which we use others as a yardstick to measure our self-worth by placing ourselves above or below others sometimes worded not praising self at the expense of others or not praising yourself while abusing others. The previous precept explored the ways we demean others and ourselves by viewing them from the perspective of faults. In this precept we explore what prevents us from meeting others on equal ground. I do not mean equal talents, abilities, strengths, or weaknesses. I mean equal as human beings. This precept reveals the realm of competition and how often we view life as a game of winners and losers. Measuring ourselves to others is not just limited to speech, however. It also includes the actions we take with people. For example, we avoid, ignore, or exclude others in our activities put ourselves above others, not only as individuals, but also as groups. No matter what side of an issue they are on, we may claim a superior, enlightened view. When we speak or act in this way, clarity, discovery, and true dialogue are lost. Yes, I'm very much concerned that just naturally you know, we seek our comfort zone, we exclude others. I think, you know, that's, that's an illness of this society. Uh, during the Vietnam War, the Vietnamese Zen teacher Thich Nhat Hanh spoke before a liberal, politically active audience in Berkeley, California. When asked about taking political action, he told the audience that taking action was important, but more important was to try was to try remember was to try to remember that they are not helping bringing peace as long as they place themselves in a morally superior position. He reminded us that we can be very good at writing letters but very poor at opening our hearts and minds to those who oppose us. Pretty, pretty difficult. And then Diane goes on to make a few other pretty practical suggestions. 
Even though we may not consciously place ourselves above others as a way of measuring our self-worth, we can know if we are in the game of competition by watching our reactions when we make a mistake. Say, for example, you forget an important appointment. Do you quickly justify your actions by finding excuses? Do you blame or find fault with something else? The point is, when we jump to our own defense, we place ourselves above the situation. So we're just kind of adding our ego identity to just the basic thing that happened. What is at risk if we say, I'm sorry, I forgot the appointment? This is more than simply speaking truthfully, it is also being humble, neither better nor worse. We forgot the appointment, that's it. What do we add on to it? What is the voice that automatically jumps in defense? When we can acknowledge our fallibility, we know the true humility and instead of reacting, respond by saying, I'm sorry. Uh, so this, this happened to me. I, I made a mistake at one of my jobs and I uh, apologized to my boss. And then I started to explain to him the different factors <laughs> that caused me to make this mistake. And I think he, he said, like Benjamin Franklin said this, he goes, don't spoil a perfectly good apology with excuses. <laughs> it really hit me hard because, of course, you know, this was a <laughs> another mistake I was making on top of the first one. But but I, I try to, to follow that now. Um, the requirement to place ourselves above others is often fueled by stories we believe about ourselves in relation to others. So as we wake up, we see, yeah, it's kind of all stories, you know, and because we should work, work with our stories, maybe tell nicer stories, but we should also admit, like, yeah, I'm telling a story says, you can work your fingers to the bone, you can be the most capable person on the job, you can be an understanding partner and a caring parent, but as long as you look for confirmation of self-worth through helping others, then there's something to look at there. So yeah, being a good person, you know, I'm not saying don't be a good person. Though I did experiment when somebody was pointing out to give up goodness, I thought, no, maybe I can experiment here. <laughs> Cooping off anyhow. Uh, but here's another practice I sometimes try to do is something goes well, I do something special and nobody knows about it. Can I please just try to not tell anybody? Just try to not tell anybody. <laughs> That's a little hard. <laughs> uh, not only do we place ourselves above others, but also we can place ourselves below others. This is a particularly covert form of behavior and is worth exploration. If you find that you habitually compare yourself to others and place yourself on the short side of the stick, 
and it's important to explore this way of thinking. There's a lot of me in those thoughts. What we don't get so easily is that it's really okay not to be good at everything. You know, so we're kind of practicing Buddhism to, in a way, to be good, <laughs> in a way to optimize, to wake up, to ground ourselves in reality, to do our best, but the subtle perfectionism creeps in, and perfectionism is a, is a real, really is not helpful. So we can relax, relax into being a, being human. Whether we place ourselves above or below others, we are substituting the idea about who we are or should be for the simple truth that as human beings, we are good at some things and not so good at other things. We fail and we succeed. We know and we don't know. We accomplish some useful things and we mess up some other things. That is what it means to be human. Watch how your thoughts create a story about people rather than letting them reveal themselves. At some point you'll be able to catch it every now and again before you begin to do it. Now experience what it's like to engage without the story. This needn't be just with new people, but you can be with your partner, your kids, anyone you've known for a long time. Try meeting them as if for the first time, as strangers. Turn your attention to their physical characteristics. What is the color of their eyes? Look at their faces as if you were seeing them for the first time. Listen to what they're saying and how they're saying it. The words, the pauses, and the voice intonation. This is not as difficult as it may seem. It is simply a matter of turning your attention toward what is in front of you, not what's in your head. No story, just what is. As you find your thoughts going off into a storyline, return again and again to the person in front of you while staying in touch with the feelings or sensations that may arise. Okay, I think I'll stop there because that was a very nice point. You've been listening to a Dharma Talk from Prairie Mountain Zen Center in Longmont, Colorado. To learn more about us or to make a donation, visit us at prairiemountain.org.